Well, it's our time to worship the Lord through the study of His Word. So if you would, just bow your heads with me and ask as we ask God to attend to our time. Heavenly Father, this is indeed um, a time, really oftentimes when we think of church where, where we think we're the audience. And the reality is you're the audience. We're the worshipers. And we ought to be honoring to you and you so graciously lavish upon us everything we need for life and for godliness from your word. You've given us the Holy Spirit to accompany us in that and to empower us to obey. And so I pray this morning that your word would interact with our hearts in such a way that our lives would be affected, that our minds would be challenged, that our day would be different, that our sin would be eradicated in practice so that your name would be glorified in and through us as you watch our lives be honored. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, please take your Bibles with me and open them to our study of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Some time ago we began this series on the doctrine of justification. And as equally as important as that doctrine is, we have been really studying the implications that our understanding of justification and our eternal security because of justification ought to have on our everyday living. There are implications for our lives right now. For you who believe upon Jesus Christ, for you who have heard about justification, who are understanding the doctrine of justification, who are more solidified in your understanding of your eternal security than you were before, there are implications that ought to be lived out in your daily life. When we began this series, I told us that the Apostle Paul's emphasis is not primarily the doctrine of sanctification. You will pick up commentaries, you will pick up other people who study the Scriptures, and they will say to you that Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7, even Romans chapter 8, are all about sanctification. And rightly so, there is a boatload included in there in reference to sanctification. Maybe some of you are here and don't understand what sanctification is. So let me define it for us just in a simple way. The original term, the original biblical term for sanctification in the biblical languages is the word for holiness. Holiness. To be set apart in a technical sense. To be holy. That is what the word means. And so... When you hear the word sanctification being used by someone, or someone uses the term sanctify, or you read that in the Scriptures, it's talking about holiness. And we don't have trouble 
in our own minds, if we know Jesus Christ, we don't technically have trouble with our position in the grand picture of redemption before God. Even though we are living here on this earth, one day we'll be with God. We don't have a a problem thinking about our position of holiness in the heavens with God right now. In other words, God sees us, if you know Jesus Christ by faith, He sees you as holy. Positionally, before God, in His grand plan of redemption, because God is not bound by time, God is outside of time, He interacts with time, He created time, but He's not bound by time. In His eyes, we are positionally holy through Jesus Christ. We don't have a problem with that. We don't struggle with that, typically. In the mind of God, we already are holy before Him. That's our positional holiness. That's our positional sanctification. And we don't often have trouble with the idea or the concept of our future sanctification. Our future sanctification or our future holiness. In other words, one day we will actually be in glory with God by means of our faith in Jesus Christ, whereby we are where our positional sanctification now, our positional sanctification becomes or is joined with our glorified selves, we are actually holy. Actually holy. Forever. We don't have a trouble with that, typically. We don't have trouble with God seeing us as holy now. We don't have trouble with the future when we get to glory that we will actually be holy. But we can often have trouble with our practical sanctification or our practical holiness. In other words, we struggle with the daily living out of holiness right here, right now. In our temporal lives here on this earth, as we live as Christians, as aliens and strangers, in the words of Peter, on this earth we have trouble, we struggle with our practical holiness. And part of the reason that we struggle with it is because we don't rightly understand all that we have through justification. Part of the reason that we struggle with sanctification or we struggle with practical holiness, and we might even label that the term obedience, the the difficulty oftentimes we have with that is because we don't rightly understand all that we have and all that we've been given through justification. And because of that, there is a very practical danger that we engage in. We can begin to abuse our position in Christ. We can begin to abuse the innocence that we have before God, our justification, and think that it really doesn't matter if we sin now that it really is no big deal. Because after all, as we've been talking about, we are under grace. God's grace covers it. God's grace has already dealt with it. Christ has already dealt with it on the cross. It's no big deal. And so by our own self-imposed weakness to just give in to sinful things, and by our own self-imposed ignorance of the truth of the doctrine of justification, we become grace abusers. In our own Christian living, by our own self-imposed ignorance of our union with Jesus Christ by faith, 
we can very easily become grace abusers. And so I say all of that as we begin because while I don't believe that the primary doctrine that is being addressed here is practical sanctification, it certainly is the byproduct of a right understanding of justification. So let me, let me say it as simply as I can. Some of you who know me a little better know that I just think in simple terms. I, I'm a pretty simple, logical guy in that way. Let me just say it this way. If we properly understand our justification, then we will properly be walking in practical sanctification. Let me say that again. If we properly and rightly understand our justification or our union with Jesus Christ, which is included within that reality of God's declaration of innocence, justification, if we rightly understand that and all that we get within that by means of God's declaration, then we will properly be walking in practical sanctification as an implicational outcome in our life. We will do it. Maybe we ought to say it the opposite way. If we're not walking in practical holiness in our life, I guarantee you there's something gone awry with your understanding and grasping of all that you are in Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? If we rightly understand our innocence before God through that unity with Jesus Christ, then we will continually be active in our striving for personal holiness. That's what the Apostle Paul is driving at throughout this passage. In other words, every action has an opposite and equal reaction. You who are physicists understand that clearly. God has justified all who have faith in Jesus Christ. That is a done deal. It is a a fact that has been accomplished. Christ died on the cross If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have been justified. And the opposite and equal reaction to that understanding is fighting every day for practical holiness. Let me read for us our text that I want to spend a little time on this morning. We've covered the first 11 verses in chapter 6, and so I just want to begin this morning to to begin to uncover for us to to dig into verses 12 to 14. Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but... Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Because, or for, sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. These are such wonderful words for us to hear as Christians. We already understand the sad condition of every person who has ever lived on the face of this earth. We already understand that condition. We know from what God has said to us in 
Paul's letter, we know that all people born into humanity are all guilty before God. We know that. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3, clearly shows that reality. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. All men are under the wrath of God. All people are guilty before God. We are all guilty before God. Why? Because we were all in Adam when Adam sinned, and therefore we all sinned. We were there. And as a result of that, we, that is, we of humanity, are all guilty before God. And the goodness... The goodness is that God sent His only begotten Son into this sinful world so that He, God, might save us from the guilt and power of sin. And He promises that if we will believe in all that He has told us concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, if we will entrust ourselves to the sacrifice Christ made for our sin on behalf of us, if we will turn from our sin, turn to God from sin, from idols, from all of the sinfulness, turn to God, then God will declare us innocent in His sight and we will one day be glorified and perfect with Him forever. We will be sinless one day. Now, here's the trouble with that. Here's the trouble with us, even us who believe upon Jesus Christ. We see the reality of sin still taking place. We hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We hear the offer of the gospel that if you will believe upon Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be saved. And yet we still see this active reality of sin taking place right now in the world and in our lives. How do we deal with that? And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the depth of the doctrine of justification, which is intimately linked with the reality of our present and actual union with Jesus Christ. Not just in some ways, not just in part ways, but in every way, and all of the benefits that come with being unified with Jesus Christ. We learned last time that part of those benefits of our union with Jesus Christ is that we have died with Christ to sin when He died to sin. Christ was put on the cross, and He was put on the cross as an innocent man. He, in Him there was no sin. He knew no sin, and yet He died as a sinner. He was put on the cross because of our sin, and when Christ died to sin, all who believe upon Jesus Christ died to sin with Him. That means our relationship to sin has completely changed. Whereby sin was our master, whereby sin was our slave owner, if you will, in the words as Paul uses that metaphor throughout We were the slaves of sin. Now our relationship has completely changed. We died to it. And Paul said in verses 3 to 11, we also were buried with him in death. 
You say, well, why was that important? Why is it important for Paul to say we died with him? Isn't dying with him enough? Why does Paul also have to say we were buried with him? Because burial shows that death is complete. It's a finality. The last thing of death is burial. You do not bury living people if you are someone who isn't committing a crime. Only dead people are buried. Christ died because of our sin, and that death was real, and that death was final. And we, being united with Him by faith, were also buried with Him. Therefore, our relationship to the penalty of sin, our relationship to the power of sin is completely over. It's ended. We as Christians are not under the penalty of sin. We as Christians are not owned by sin. We are not under the power of sin. We have been buried in our relationship to sin. Then Paul went on to say even more than that. He said not only have we been died with Christ, not only have we been buried with Christ, but we have been raised with Christ. How? By, he said, the power or the powerful glory, if you will, of God the Father and to what? To a new life. We died to sin, but we have been raised with Christ to a new life. To a new life. In relation to God, we are no longer enemies of God. God is the enemy of all who will not believe upon His Son, all who will not turn from their sin. He is your enemy. He is the one who will crush you one day for eternity. He was our enemy. But because we've been raised to new life, He is no longer our enemy. And and we have a new life in relationship to sin. It and its eternal effects are no longer our master. You notice that in verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer master over him. If we have been buried with Christ, if we have died with Christ, if we have been raised with Christ, then sin is no longer our master. Death is no longer our master. So all of that is extremely important if we are going to live holy lives right now. Understanding that, understanding the reality of that. That's what Paul exhorts us uh, about in verse 11. Notice what he says in verse 11. Even so, in other words, in light of all that I said in verse 3 to 10, even so with all of that, then consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Some translations say reckon yourselves. Consider yourselves, think of yourselves in this way. Consider your, your, this condition that you have. Con, con, consider who you are in Christ right now, that you are dead to sin, dead to its power, dead to its eternal penalty, dead to its rule, dead to its mastery over you. Consider yourselves in that way. That's who you really are. That's what's taken place with you by faith, by the power, the glorious power and working of God on your behalf by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that reality ought to have, if we understand it rightly, that reality ought to have an opposite and actual reality 
or an opposite and equal reaction in our lives each and every day. If we understand the doctrine of justification rightly and all that we have in that, it ought to have a, a reaction in our life. What is that reaction? Practical striving for personal holiness. Practical living out. Practical right now sanctification. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you aren't quite convinced that personal holiness is all that important for us who claim Jesus Christ. You're still living in this realm that says, well, isn't it all covered by grace? Yes, we all understand that. But you're still not convinced because of that, that personal holiness is all that important. Well, I want us to turn for a moment to Hebrews chapter 12. We're not going to spend a long time there, but I want to take us there for a moment because I want us to hear some very important words from the writer of Hebrews. Now, some believe Paul wrote Hebrews. We're not quite sure. If you want to believe Paul wrote Hebrews, that's fine. Some of the languages seem similar. Of course, we've studied through the book of Hebrews. We've even studied this very passage. Hebrews chapter 12 I want to remind us of the absolute importance of practical holiness in your life right now. In other words, I don't want you to get this idea that you can think that because everything's covered by grace, there's no need for you to strive at practical obedience, at practical living out of your Christian life, at practical holiness. I want to, I want to cleanse that from your thinking if that's in your thinking. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 is the verse I want to focus on, but I want to, I want to read from verse 10. He says, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. He's talking about discipline, the discipline of the Lord, if you started verse 1. He's talking about that the Lord disciplines His children, His sinning children. Those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, God isn't just going to let you be however you want. If you're going to sin, He's going to discipline you. And Paul's using the example, or the writer of Hebrews is using the example of our own fathers on this earth. For they disciplined us for a short time, notice, as it seemed best to them. Now, I know as parents, we'd like to think we, we discipline our children and we say to them, this, this is going to hurt me a lot more. It's going to hurt you. And, of course, as kids, we heard that. We go, yeah, really? It seems to hurt me a whole lot more. And we want to say that we're doing the best for our children. But the reality is, here on this earth, as fallen humans, as sinful humans, what is best, even from our best best, is still best simply for us. Notice... Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Right? They were assuming they were doing good for their child, but in the reality they were, they were trying to instill some principles. But, but the bottom line was it was still in order to help them in the grand scheme, even though they might have thought that way. But God, but He disciplines us, what? For our good. God actually disciplines us for our good. Not for His good. He doesn't need any. He's perfect. He does it actually for our good, so that we may share His, what? 
holiness. That's the word sanctification. There, there you got it. So that we might share in holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. In fact, it seems to be sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Uh, righteous, that's the character of God. That's the, the very essence of who God is by His very nature. It reveals a fruit of, of godliness, we could call it. God disciplines those whom He loves in order to produce in you godliness. And notice, verse 12, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He's talking about just your very activity of your life. Make sure you're, you're reining yourself in. Pursue peace with all men. And, get this, the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, it seems to me that that seems like it's pretty important. If you're not holy... You're not going to see the Lord. Now you say, well, that's strange. You already told us we are positionally holy, we're future holy. That's true. And yet the reality is that those who actually know Jesus Christ, who understand who they are in Christ, will strive for practical holiness. And so if you're not striving for practical holiness, if it's not even a desire of yours, if you're not in that camp, guess what the picture is? That you probably aren't saved. Because holiness is what is what God requires. And if you're holy in Jesus Christ by faith, then you will strive for practical holiness right now. This is absolutely important in our lives. So understand this. Understand this. There is no such thing in Christendom not man's view of Christendom, in God's view and understanding of Christendom, which is the only understanding that matters, there is no such thing as a true Christian who is not working on practical holiness. Let me say that again. There is no such thing in Christendom whereby someone is a true Christian who is not working at being holy in practice. Sanctification is absolutely important because it is the outworking of your actual faith. Does that mean that you will be in every way perfect here and now? Patently obvious, that can't be the case. None of us are. Does that mean that you somehow, through your striving and holiness, will be earning salvation before God? We know that can't be true. By the works, no man will see God, right? By the works of the flesh doesn't come salvation. No one earns their way to heaven. But it does mean that you are striving because you are in Christ, because you are unified with Christ, because there is that relationship that was by faith through grace, because you are new in Christ, because you are secure in Christ, 
because you are innocent before God, because you are holy in position before God, that you will now, this side of heaven, strive to be in practice what you already are in position. You see? And so that is what the Apostle Paul is turning our minds to in Romans chapter 6. So go back to Romans chapter 6. This is the implicational reaction of rightly understanding our present and actual union with Christ. That's what he's getting to here in verses 12 to 14. The implicational reaction, the implicational outworking, if you will, in our life based upon an understanding that we were guilty before God, we need Jesus Christ, we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and now you have all that you've been given in Jesus Christ, you're actually unified with Christ, here's the implicational action for your life. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 12, therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Let's stop right there for a moment. We all understand what the word therefore means, don't we? You've heard the old little saying that has gone on before. Whenever you see a therefore, ask yourself, what is the therefore therefore? Right? It means, in light of everything that I have said, this is Paul talking, in light of everything that I've told you already, in light of your absolute and eternal security in Jesus Christ, in light of all of the benefits that come with your unity with Him, therefore, this must be your practice. What is that? What is that practice that we are to have? First thing, number one, and this is the only one we're going to get to this morning, as you can well tell. Number one is this. We are to be spiritual snipers. Spiritual snipers. Now, I was making up my notes for today and I thought, boy, snipers, that's a pretty, that's a pretty strong term. I wonder, I wonder if I should use that term. As you can tell, I decided to use that term. Why? Because snipers have a job to do if they are to protect self and others. They have one job to do. They are to do it very, very well. They are to identify and kill the enemy. That's what snipers do. They sit in hiding and they look out and they identify and they kill the enemy. If you've ever read anything about snipers in, in war, if you've ever seen a documentary consider, uh, dealing with snipers in war, that principle is throughout the entire thing. They identify and kill the enemy. Well, that is how God wants us, as His children, to think about practical holiness. We are spiritual snipers. We are to identify and kill any vestige of the enemy we see. We are to identify it and we are to kill it. And the enemy is sin. Sin in our 
practical mortal bodies here and now. So notice what Paul says. In light of what you know and what you understand about your justification, do not let sin what? Do not let it reign. Do you see that? In light of everything you understand about your justification, your position, your unity with Jesus Christ, your innocence before God, in light of all of that, in light of all of that, don't let sin reign. In other words, God has done everything that He is going to do for us by way of positional holiness. Right? We are in Christ. He has even secured our eternal future holiness in Christ. And... He has even empowered us by His Spirit to now do our part. Not our part by way of earning salvation, but doing our part by way of what He's commanded of us to do as His children in light of being unified with Jesus Christ. And that is to walk in the newness of life that He gave us. How do we do that? By not allowing sin to reign. Don't allow it to reign. Don't allow sin to rule us. Do you realize this about yourself? Do you know Jesus Christ by faith? That you are absolutely secure in Christ. I've said that throughout this entire series. I wonder if you realize that about yourself. If you've actually considered yourself that way. That you are absolutely secure in Jesus Christ. Nothing can remove us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul will tell us that in Romans chapter 8. Nothing. Nothing can remove you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Guess what? Not even the worst of sins. Not even the worst of sins. David committed adultery, and yet God said he's a man after my heart. He paid a great price. He paid a great temporal price on this earth. God chastened him like Hebrews 12 says. And yet, he was not removed from his relationship with Jesus Christ even though he sinned. So in light of that reality, anytime sin is ruling in your life, you have to be like that sniper. You have to identify it and kill it. Don't let it rain. Don't let it rain. Listen, that's not a suggestion here in the words of Paul. This is not, oh, by the way, listen, if you just want to have a good life as a Christian, don't let sin rain in your life. It's, it's really a good suggestion. I, you know, I mean, I'm just, you know, take it or leave it. No, it's not what Paul's saying. Listen, practical holiness. Practical holiness is lived out by following those things in which we are commanded. This is a command. You want to start with practical holiness? Start right here and don't let sin reign. That's a command. Think of it like this. You will not be practically holy if you are allowing sin to reign. If you're allowing sin to reign, you're saying, God, please just change my life. It's not going to happen like that. If you're allowing sin to reign... You will not be practicing holiness, nor, as a byproduct, will you be happy in life. You will not be happy on this earth. 
You say, well, why? Because happy and blessed people, this side of heaven, are those who walk by faith in the commands of God. They do not let sin reign. You say, well, how do you know that? That's what the Bible tells us. Just, just let me remind us of that from the Old Testament. Psalm 1. You don't have to turn very far. Just Psalm 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Psalm 1 tells us clearly. How blessed is the man. Blessed is that, that word for complete and utter from within happiness. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Okay, so I'm not going to listen to the counsel of those who are wicked. Sinners, wicked, that's an equal sign in the, in the Scriptures. I'm not going to listen to sin. I'm not going to listen to those who are sinning. I'm not going to be in that earshot if I can help it. I'm not going to listen to them. By listen, I mean listen with the idea of doing. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of wicked, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. You see, he doesn't, he doesn't go with them. He doesn't walk down the road with them. He doesn't entertain life with them. Nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. You know what? He doesn't camp himself there. He doesn't hear their counsel. He doesn't walk with them in life, and he doesn't camp out there thinking, oh, gee, I'm a Christian. I'm going to make a big impact on them. Listen, they need the gospel. That's the only thing that will change them. No, the happy person is is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, Psalm 1, verse 2. And in his law he meditates all the time, day and night. He's going to be like that tree firmly planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. They're like that stuff you scrape off that's dry, brittle, has no life, and it just blows off into nothingness, burned up with the fire. That's what the wicked are like. Therefore, the wicked aren't going to stand in the judgment. He doesn't mean the wicked aren't going to be there in the judgment. He's going to be, they have nothing to stand on in the judgment. When they stand before God, it's full on. Sinners aren't going to be in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked is going to perish. Oh, okay, Pastor, but that's the Old Testament. Aren't we New Testament Christians? Well, then let's just hear it straight from the mouth of Jesus Christ. John 13, we studied this a little while ago in our study of John. Verse 15 to 17, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. I mean, this is God incarnate. I gave you an example that you should do just like I did to you. I gave you an example. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave isn't greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Same word. Paul says, don't let sin reign. The psalmist, in essence, says, don't let sin reign. Jesus Christ says, don't let sin reign. And listen, killing sin is not something that's going to happen by chance. It's not something that is done for you. Killing sin is not something God's going to do for you. It is a command for us to kill it. We must not let it reign. 
love that word reign because it, it, it's the word for being a king in the original language. Being a king. That's what kings do. Kings reign. Kings rule. Kings decree. Kings, kings set the course for their kingdom. And all who are in their kingdom, they, they set the course for it. When the king said, you die, you die. King says, you live, you live. Sin wants to rule. Sin wants to be the king in your life, even though it no longer owns you. Even though you've died to it, even though it's not your master, it still wants to own you. You have died to its eternal penalty. You are out from under its controlling power. So, Paul says, don't let it rule in your life. It can't rule your eternal soul. You are out from under its controlling power. Don't let it rule right now. But oftentimes we can let it rule, can't we? Notice we let it rule, Paul says, don't let it reign in your mortal bodies. Mortal bodies. What are our mortal bodies? Our mortal bodies are the bodies we live in right now. You walk around in a mortal body. One day we'll take on immortality, the Bible tells us. But for now we are still in our mortal bodies. And sin is still active in them. Just listen how Paul describes it to the, first, to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 53 and 54, just listen. For this perishable, he's talking about this body, this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, sin is here. Sin wants to rule. Sin's still active in your mortal bodies, even though you're saved, even though you're positionally holy, even though your future is insured and guaranteed by Christ. The sin is operative in this temporal world, in your mortal bodies, and yet one day that will fully be eradicated. Death will be completely swallowed up. We can think of it this way. We live currently in a temporal condition. We live in mortal bodies. We live right now here in this world. We are saved. Our souls are secure, but we still live in this world, still in our mortal bodies, and sin is still left, and sin is operative in our bodies. But it's not going to be that way forever. We will one day put on immortality. In that immortality will be the removal of any vestige of sin. There will be no sin in glory. Our soul is finished with the penalty of sin. God has secured us in that way. Our mortal bodies have to deal with it here and now, and sin is always seeking to dominate. In fact, that's exactly what sin wants to do, doesn't it? Sin wants to rule. Sin wants to dominate. What sin does is it turns our 
natural desires into strong desires. He says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its epithumia in the original language. It's strong desires. You have natural desires. You have desires that aren't even sinful. And yet, oftentimes, those natural desires that aren't sinful seem to become sinful so easy. That's what sin wants to do. Wants to take those natural things and just make them sinful. Just run them to the nth degree. And so Paul is telling us that sin's desire is to dominate. Sin wants to dominate you. And we must not let it dominate. We have to identify it. We have to be like that expert sniper. We have to kill it. We have to fight against it. You say... Well, this is tough. I mean, is this this the way it's always been? Yeah. Genesis chapter 4. Go all the way back to the beginning. Listen to what God says to Cain. Now, these are the first two children that we know about of Adam and Eve. Cain, Abel. Cain kills his brother because he brings a better sacrifice. Genesis chapter 4, God says, Why are you angry, Cain? Why has your countenance fallen? In other words, why are you soaking around all unhappy? Isn't it if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? He doesn't mean if you do the right things, aren't you going to save your... He says, no, if, if you'll just obey, if you live out striving practical holiness, will not you be... In your countenance, it'll be lifted because you know in your your heart before me, you're right with me. And if you do not do well, guess what's happening? Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. See, it wants to rule you. You've got to rule it. Let me ask all of us a question. Do you desire to be holy in practice in your life? Claim Christ by faith. You say, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ or I have a relationship with God and you desire to holiness. You say, yes. As a Christian, that ought to be your answer. Yes, I, I desire to be holy. If if not, then, then we got to go back to chapter 1 and, and, and let you hear about how you're guilty before God. That ought to be our desire as Christians. I want to be holy right now. So the first place to start in that practical holiness is understanding all that you are in Christ. The first place to start in striving for practical holiness is understanding, man, this is who God has made me in Christ. Why? Because there is a logical and right response to understanding that. There are practical implications to understanding your position in Jesus Christ. If I understand who I am in Christ, then I should be asking the question of myself, what kind of person should I be as a result of understanding who I am in Christ? If in Christ I died with Christ, then why did I die with Christ? 
That's the implicational question. If I died with Christ, why did I die with Christ? And the answer has to be, well, I didn't die with him so that I could make every attempt at returning to what I died to. I didn't die with Christ so that I could go back to the old life and just do what I died to. If I died with him to sin, then why would I allow it to rule me right now? Therefore, why should I not allow sin to reign in my mortal body? Why should I not allow it to? Because I am a person who claims to know what God's purpose is for me. To coin a phrase that's been abused throughout the years. I know as a Christian what God's purpose is for me. Well, what is that purpose? It's that all the works of the evil one would be completely eradicated from my life. God's whole purpose is to bring me back to that state into which he originally created Adam. Perfect. And so... When I think about practical holiness, it's not, gee, I'm going to try to conjure up all this activity so that God would be really pleased with my life and maybe he'll like me a little more today than he liked me yesterday when I wasn't doing that. No, that's not my motive. My motive now for what is why I cannot allow sin to reign in my life. It's because of who I am in Christ. That's why. We know what Jesus has done for us who believe. We know that he left the glories of heaven to come down to this earth, this corrupt place, corrupted by sin, so that he might be born as a man in the likeness of sinful flesh, the Bible tells us. We know and we believe that he suffered the agony and the penalty on a cross for our sin. Why did he do all of that? Did he do all of that so that we who believe in him could just go on continuing in the sin he died for? Ridiculous. No, he didn't do it for that. See, we have to preach this doctrine to ourselves all the time. We have to preach to ourselves that if I allow sin to reign in my mortal body, I'm bringing disgrace upon my heavenly Father. If I allow sin to reign in my mortal bodies, I'm bringing disgrace upon my Savior who I claim to love. If I allow sin to reign in my mortal bodies, I'm bringing disgrace upon my family of God to which I am part of and to myself. I can't do that. So if I go on sinning, I'm actually denying everything that I claim. Everything I'm looking forward to as a Christian, I'm actually denying all of that. Now listen to what Paul says to the Thessalonian believers. He says, chapter 4, verse 3, This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Some people say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I know one thing is God's will for your life, your sanctification, your holiness. Your sanctification. You say, what is Paul saying? He's saying, 
It's God's grand plan that each and every one of his children be holy in every way. That's what he said. He has declared that you're holy before him in Christ. That's our position. We will one day actually be immortally holy. That's our coming glorification. And he's equipped us by means of his Holy Spirit. And with his word to be holy in practice right now. This is his will for you. You're holy. So to not strive to kill any rule or any attempt of ruling of sin in your life is to work against God. That never goes well for God's children. It never goes well with us. God loves us too much to leave us like that. He will chasten those who need it. God doesn't like that in our life. I don't know about you, but for the Corinthian church, that meant that some of those were sick and dying because they weren't striving for practical holiness. God's desire is that we be holy. He's working in us. He's working with circumstances to that very end. If we stand against Him by allowing sin to reign in our mortal bodies, then we need not be surprised when He chastens us. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you might obey its strong desires. We're at war, folks. We are spiritual snipers. Always be looking for the enemy, killing it on the spot. You've been equipped by God to do so. He's given you the Holy Spirit. You can do it. To say, I just can't do it, is to believe what Satan would want you to believe. The Spirit of God is in you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, Ephesians tells us. We are warned by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, that our adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. How? How do I resist him, Peter? Here's how Peter says it. Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. Trust God. Do what God said. But that doesn't seem like it's going to work. It's not about what seems like it might work. It's not even about the result of that. God says, trust me. God says, do what I said for you to do. Firm in your faith. We have all been given all we need for life and godliness. Now we need to exercise it. We all, many of us love the Puritans. We love what the Puritans wrote. John Owen asked this question year, over 100 years ago. Are you killing sin? Or is sin killing you? good question so the first practice is a defensive practice be a spiritual sniper the second is offensive we'll get to that next time let's pray father we thank you for our time this morning the joy and privilege it is to just be together and to 
hear these practical truths from your word. To begin to think about our own lives and how we can strive for holiness. Not because we're not holy before you in Christ, but because it's right. Because you've equipped us for these things. You've given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And so we must live as a reflection of that, not letting sin reign. Thank you for challenging us, exhorting us. Father, as we submit ourselves to you, may we see the great honor and glory of your name in our life and the joy that we find in simple obedience to you. That Christ would be exalted above all things. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.